I'm so excited to learn what the gayest animal is. Welcome to You're Wrong About. I'm Sarah Marshall, and this week we are talking with Lulu Miller about lesbian seagulls. We start off this episode talking about gay penguins, but this is a journey through the animal kingdom. And I also feel strongly that if in life you have the option to call a podcast episode Lesbian Seagulls, you take it. You just take it. This is an episode we're releasing in conjunction with a Radio Lab episode called The Seagulls. And if you want to learn more and have an amazing time doing it, you should go listen. Here at You're Wrong About, we like to celebrate pride all year round. That's just what happens when you make either a show about moral panics or a show about history. But we have some extra special episodes, I think, for you this month. And this one with Lulu is such a joy. I hope you experience the joy that we felt making it. This is one of our rare episodes that isn't a giant downer in one way or another. So, you know, savor the flavor. It won't happen for a while. Over on Patreon and Apple Plus subscriptions, we have some really fun bonus episodes for you. We have uh, part two of our story of the life and times of Vicki Morgan with our guest, the irreplaceable Evelyn Lee. And coming up later this month, we're going to talk about the gay agenda with Chelsea Weber-Smith. That is everything you need to know. Have a wonderful time on this joyride. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being queer. Welcome to an episode about those gay penguins. Lulu, hello. Hello. As you know, I've listened to, I think, every episode. I adore your show, which is like a no-brainer to everyone else who adores it. And there's just like something crazy to me about this because truly, like when I started caring about podcasts, it was like you were the producer who I like most knew by name and was like, someday, obviously never, but someday, like I was just like, you were my like icon of like what the medium could do. And now you're like, I like your show. And I'm like, oh my God, that's, no, you don't. You're confused. No, I, no, I love it so much. You have done so many dishes with me. You have accompanied me uh, during so many walks and runs and like just, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm happy to be here. Me and my pals have helped you wash so many dishes. So and, many. and now today, Lulu. I'm going to help you wash a big stack. Yes. Okay. So gay, gay penguins. <laughs> What do you think of when you think of gay penguins? So I think maybe the Central Park Zoo had two male penguins who hatched an egg together and there was a children's book written about it called, I think, Tango Makes Three. Get you. <laughs> Is that right? That is totally right. Yeah, perfect. So in the late 90s, there was this pair of chinstrap penguins in the Central Park Zoo uh, that that began to take an interest in each other. They were both males. And, you know, they were kind of like hang out together. There was a year where one of them tried to incubate a rock mm. and they just kept pairing off. And so zookeepers thought, you know, let's give them an egg from another couple. Mm. And they did. They incubated it. They cared for it. It hatched. They raised it. The zookeepers named that chick Tango. Um, and they were this great little family. And they were wonderful dads. And it captured many people's hearts. And it freaked many people mm, out. Right. And about five years later, in 2005, this couple, Peter Parnell and Justin Richardson, wrote a book called And Tango Makes Three. You know, basically that story. It's filed as a nonfiction children's book, even though it's illustrated. Oh, wow. 
And then so it became beloved. It won all these awards. It was also one of the most, like according to the American Library Association, one of the most banned or contested books for about five years in our country. Which is incredible, right? Because it's like when you think about a banned book, I mean, now we all know what it means. Yeah. But there was a time when you would be like, oh, yeah, what books would a library yeah. not want to expose kids to? I don't know, like Mein Kampf or whatever. That's probably a good idea. No. <laughs> right. The whimsical penguin dad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think for a lot of people, this was the gateway story into an awareness of homosexual animals. Mm. For me, it definitely mm -hmm. was. Now, I have to admit that, like, my understanding of it when I heard about it was, oh, this is probably because captivity. Hmm. Like, there probably aren't enough females, and the zoo probably turned them gay. And I, I think even as this was right around, you know, I was like, realizing I was queer right around the time this story came out. So on one hand, I had a lot mm -hmm. of affection for it. I loved it. Mm -hmm. But I also, while celebrating it in my heart, I kind of like immediately discounted it as not actually something that would occur in the wild. Mm -hmm. Did it strike you in any way in terms of your understanding of animals in general? Did it seem like a a surprise or I, I'm just curious? I mean, well, first of all, I think I have a pretty unscientific brain. Okay. I'm very much a sort of storyteller bard type, and that's going to be my role when society collapses in about two years. You're going to be on like a plush ottoman with like a necklace and a story to tell. Yes. Well, or I'm going to be like Paul Bettany when he gets introduced in A Knight's Tale, just like walking <laughs> naked because he's like been robbed of all his clothes or something. Okay, yeah. One of the two. But it's going to be useful. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to find you. Yeah. I, so that thought never occurred to me. And I remember when this story was in the news, and I think I heard about it in probably an NPR story about the book being banned. Mm -hmm. I felt like it connected in a great way as like proof positive of like, well, of course there should be gay marriage, a thing that seemed like this legal horizon mm -hmm. that would be impossible to actually reach at the time. Because like, look at the penguins. Yeah. Doesn't it just make sense? Because like, you don't want everyone to reproduce because that would just be <laughs> kind of a strain on resources. Like that was kind of my theory biologically. <laughs> I don't know. It, it makes sense for like nature to sort of streamline it so that you have like helpers as well as breeders i don't know yeah some extra parents totally yeah. totally well i love that's that is a wildly great take i love that and it's interesting you brought up not having a quote-unquote scientific mind although i would argue you probably do but i really did i have a scientist father if i was like truly born into the religion of science mm -hmm. every explanation is scientific and i think that that in this case was a hindrance hmm. for me to understanding homosexuality's role in nature. Mm -hmm. Because I, in this very odd convergence of beliefs, the Darwinian perspective really bolstered this old religious idea that homosexuality was a, quote, crime against mm -hmm. nature. Mm -hmm. And when Darwin kind of took hold, while in so many ways those ideas like ruptured old understandings of hierarchies and nature and how we all got here in this weird way. It kind of like confirmed that idea because it was like, well, if they're not having procreative sex and they can't pass on their genes, there'd be no reason for that trait to stay along. And so I think as a kid with a loose, you know, evolutionary thinking, I weirdly like I took that on and I was just like, well, there wouldn't, it might be fine in human society, but like it doesn't, hmm. 
make sense in mm-hmm. nature. That just doesn't make sense. And so to see it in a zoo, I was like, that is wonderful, but that's got to be a byproduct of captivity. I mean, it's, I do think it's a reasonable thing to wonder generally. And then also that reminds me of one of the very early episodes we did on alpha males, mm. which is based on, you know, a study that was like disavowed by the scientist who I think originally put forth this theory because it turned out that the alpha male effect observed in captive wolves is a feature of captivity and also that like the the way they organize is like into family units Mm. so like the alpha male is the dad wow okay so that's kind of like personally my starting place of understanding same-sex mating and pairing and behavior in nature was was kind of there and the story i want to tell is basically like it's about gay penguins but it's also about it's really the story of a belief that is patently wildly untrue. Mm. And so that's really the story. And that belief is that there is no homosexuality in nature. Mm. So hmm. is that a journey you are willing to take with me? Oh, my gosh. Yes, let's do it. Where are we going? Okay, well, we're obviously going to the 13th century. Of course. Love it. Let's get some ale. <laughs> and we're going to kind of like just look at the the birthplace arguably of the belief, which is with huh. Thomas Aquinas. Classic. He wrote that homosexuality, which was called unisexual love at that time, wa- uh, was, you know, obviously is a sin. Everyone's calling it a sin for a long time. But it was a special sin because you did not find it in nature. And he is really the one hmm. who began adding this idea that it was unnatural, that it was a vice or a crime, quote, against nature. I think of him as someone who kind of brought nature Hmm. or animals into the equation as backup. This is also like such a wild standard to me because like, for example, (laughs) bunnies like eat their own young if you so much as look at them funny. Oh, yeah. We're so (sighs) fractured on when we see nature as pure and something to emulate versus something to set ourselves. I know. Yeah. But I think the idea is like this kind of Noah's Ark idea of, you know, this isn't just about beliefs even the animals obey this rule. It's so sacred, you know, like, mm. interestingly, before Aquinas, you do see science minded people talking about same sex pairing in nature. So mm-hmm. like Aristotle talks about it in pigeons and Isidore of Sevilla talks like seventh century talks about it in partridges. And like, there were observations because people were looking at the world. Mm-hmm. But once Aquinas declares this against nature thing, Okay, so on one hand, Thomas Aquinas says this, that phrase against nature, crime against nature is very catchy. It catches like wildfire. And that's when you see it kind of go into laws all over Europe. And within 50 years, sodomy goes from being basically legal everywhere, if not frowned upon, but legal, to a crime that is punishable by death. Mm -hmm. Like so from like 1250 to 1300. And Often the term crime against nature is how um, homosexuality, again, mostly talking about male on male sex, because who cares about women having sex? That's not even valid enough to uh, regulate. But again, that phrase goes into the law. But the really interesting thing is it also like it slips into science. Huh. Yeah, so there's like about 400 years where you don't really see anything. Like, there's just the observations of same-sex behavior in nature stops. Then you see in the 1700s, there's this one guy who like 
notice it zip maybe in some birds in the 1800s you see like there's a bunch of german people noticing it in this one species of beetles may beetles <laughs> animals continued to have same-sex relationships for hundreds of years but anyone who saw it was just like i assume just like well better not write that down that's not a thing like i'm seeing it but it's not a thing and just you know the way like i think we really underestimate how beliefs of the time can dictate our understanding of science yeah and so that you basically like this goes on and on and on such that by the 1970s <laughs> the scientific record basically still confirms Aquinas's random <laughs> declaration that that homosexuality is absent from the natural world and I do want to geek out for a second if you'll have mm. this on what I'm thinking about yeah. of like the taxonomy of suppression. Oh my God, yes. Okay, so what does that really mean? How do we go from, you know, the 1200s to the 1970s, 700 years? <laughs> from Gregorian chants to the hustle. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, yeah, oh God. See, now if this was Radiolab, we could score just that line and it would uh. be great. But it would go. Okay. Anyway, there you go. We did it. <laughs> we did it. So yeah. So like, how? 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 How does that actually happen? And now is where I pay like blessed homage. You're going to hear the size of this book. Mm. This is a book. I want to play homage to this guy, Bruce Bagamill, who published this book in 1999. Mm -hmm. Best book. It's called Biological Exuberance. Mm. And there's a very flirty little peacock with a blue face looking at you at the, on the cover. And then it's called Animal Homosexuality and Natural Diversity. And he is this scientist who like did this methodologically utterly perplexing thing. Like how do you find out why things aren't on the record if you don't have any records? Yeah. So bless him, bless his work, and also bless this newer book called Queer Ducks uh, by Elliot Schreffer, which is basically the YA version of that book updated for today. It's like an easy reader for kids book that just came out about the natural world of animal sexuality. So bless the two of them. Okay, so the four, the four things. So number one is what I'm calling the Noah's Ark bias. Hmm which is basically some animals look really different by sex, like peacocks, right? Mm -hmm. you got the showy male or lions, you know, the males got the mane. And yeah, a lot, of sh a lot of males with like big, you know, ornaments that make them look wider. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or ducks, you know, the mallard with his fancy green head. So like, totally, yeah, that's called that fancy head. sexual dimorphism. That's when like, mm. you look mm -hmm. very different based on your, your sex. But a ton of animals are what's called monomorphic. They look the same, like sexually monomorphic. They just mm -hmm. squirrels, seagulls, chipmunks, bun, you know, bunnies, like, they kind of look the same. Maybe if you can like, go get your finger in their parts, and you're a scientist, you might be able to know. But like, yeah. if you've been told, they're all heterosexual, you notice them mating as an everyday person or a scientist, you're probably gonna just like, assume that they are heterosexual. So that's, it might be happening in front of your face, but then you don't document it as such because you can't see it. You just don't notice because you're assuming and you don't bother check. Okay, so that's number one. Number two is what you mentioned, which is basically self-suppression. Mm. You're a scientist. Mm -hmm. You definitely see it. You don't want to write it down. You're like, I don't want everyone to call me nuts. I'm not going to talk about this. Right. 
there's a few cases that Bagamil was able to write about and find out about. So one really famous and striking one is this guy Valerius Geist, um, who actually only died about a year ago. He was a he was a mm. researcher, big in the '60s on wild sheep, so rams with the mm. lovely ram horns. Yeah, they were so gay. They were just mating all the time, and also, <laughs> oh yeah, requisite science reporter note on language. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm saying gay. I might use lesbian. I'm using, you should not use that. Those are human terms. We should not apply them to animals. And generally speaking, I don't. We say things like same-sex mating, Mm same-sex pairing, same-sex behavior, homosexuality. But this is a colloquial show and it's fun to say. So I'm saying it. There you go. But you all understand. We're having like our after-class beer talking about all this. Yes. Okay. So footnoted. Okay. Okay. So, but yeah, the Rams... And not just every now and then. The amazing thing he saw is that about 8%, so 1 in 12 rams, mm-hmm. will only mate with males. Aw, broke back rams. He wrote this like honking publication about their behavior and left that out. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he said to some other scientists, like it just was seeing such magnificent beasts doing something so terrible, I just couldn't. So he later, toward the very end of his life, admitted that he just completely omitted it because it was like basically so disgusting or unfathomable to him. Can I say too, like this is a weird bit of like anthropomorphism or whatever, but like when I think about being a ram up high in the Rockies, the wind (sighs) in my wool, my big horns curling around, like I am having sex with whatever other ram yeah wants to have sex with me um (laughs) yeah so that yeah so that's i think one move was like i can't defile this creature i just can't so it's totally the human cultural bias of like it would be terrible to say that the rams are doing what they're actually doing and it's like the rams don't care (laughs) exactly and like that so that's one case where like the person lived long enough to fess up to it. Huh. Then again, this I keep just invoking him because he's so amazing, this guy Bruce Bagamel. So he, for his book, which is basically the first ever kind of collection back in the 90s of everything that was known to science in terms of homosexuality, the way that he found a lot of it was by just cold calling hmm. scientist after scientist and just being like, Hi, have you ever actually seen homosexual behavior you never published on? And tons of them said yes. But they just, they hadn't because either there was such a like, there'd be such resistance or they were young researchers and they thought people would doubt them. And so a lot of it for the living studies, he just got by literally cold calling them and be like, saying, you know, are there any notes? And it was just dozens upon dozens. So that's kind of, okay, so that makes you think about in history, all the people we can't know. But then also earlier, you know, in the 1700s, 1800s, and earlier than that, like, the anti-sodomy laws were so terrifying. You could be Mm -hmm. punished by death. You could go to jail for your life. Like, if you published on this, and there's a few times where people did either have, like, public accounts of it, lectures at a, you know, zoological society, or publish it with this kind of, like, mysterious behavior kind of couching. Mm Mm-hmm. People would question you and there'd be outcry like, what is your unnatural interest in this? Why are you? And if you would push it too hard, like it could be very dangerous for your career, especially if you were single or young. It's kind of like the Red Scare, it feels like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like its own little Rainbow Scare version. Yeah. Yeah. So that's number two in our taxonomy, mm-hmm. self-suppression. Okay. Number three, 
overt suppression, just like Mm -hmm. people saying no. So there's tons of Mm -hmm. story. Again, like some of these we can't know because someone tried to publish, a publisher said no, and we never know. But there's a few ones where they've been caught. So, So Levick was this famous British explorer. 1911, he goes to Antarctica. And what does he look at? Penguins. And what does he see them doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> lots and lots of homosexual sex. Males mounting with each other, raising chicks together. Like, not in a zoo. Aww. In the wild, on the tundra. Mm-hmm. So, like, he dabbles in self-suppression. He is so puzzled huh. and shocked huh. that he writes his observations in Greek <laughs> so that he wouldn't traumatize the young researchers. Oh He's God. like, a depraved behavior. And then, so he he writes it in Greek. A couple years go by, and then he intends to talk about it and publish a little pamphlet. He publishes this pamphlet on the, um, you know, the behavior of these Adelie penguins, and he wants to present this before the Natural History Museum in England. Mm. And these two editors, these curators of different exhibits there, look at it and say, we will have this cut out. And they, the researchers found that, like, he intended to publish it, and then they were just like, you can't. It will be too scandalizing. And they literally found the document that was, like, scratched out, and it said, stamped, wow. like, not for publication. Jesus. And then that keeps happening. Like, again, I don't I don't know all the examples, but Bagamil was able to find this one of a report in the 1980s on homosexuality in killer whales. Uh-huh. Uh, and the U.S. government redacted those sections what yeah it was like a government-funded report and they like redacted those sections they're like it's fine for the killer whales to be kept in tiny tanks performing little tricks yeah. until they're driven into a homicidal frenzy but but the kids can't know yes that they're gay okay so now we've got the assumption it's happening in front of your eyes noah's ark but you don't mm-hmm. even bother to think it is you got self-suppression i see it but i don't want to tell anyone you've got overt mm-hmm. suppression i'm feeling courageous i'm gonna report on it publications are like nope we won't publish it. And then finally, the fourth part of this is like you get through all of that and you get to publication. And I don't have a catchy name for this, but maybe you can help mm-hmm. me think of one. I'm calling it like the Judgy McJudgy Magic Trick Vanishing Act, where <laughs> you use such judgmental language about mm-hmm. what you're seeing. You're literally calling it unna- like using words like unnatural, huh. abnormal, aberrant perverse like you use language which magically keeps the belief intact and so i'll just i'll give you a a very quick rundown of a few of my favorite article titles Mm -hmm. oh my god 1896 sexual perversion in male beetles uh 1908 sexual inversion in animals 1922 disturbances of the sexual sense in baboons 1972, aberrant sexual behavior in the South African ostrich. Really like picturing ostriches having sex. It's like this ostrich is going around sending like unsolicited dick pics to coworkers. Yeah. Cloaca pics. (laughs) And then finally, the one that takes the cake is a note on the apparent lowering of moral standards in the Lepidoptera, which is a butterfly. Oh, my God. (laughs) Come on. It's hilarious, but it also does this. Like, it's a real muscular use of language. 
you know, you and I have both spent probably too many hours of our life reading <laughs> academic articles. <laughs> yeah. And that's like such an interesting style of writing because it's like there are real rules for like, how do you put forth an idea? Like, it's not normal writing. It's not the way you would write for like an audience of people who like are <laughs> not forced to be reading this as part of their studies or their community. It would seem that there's like a limited amount of like bias or subjectivity you can convey. But I think what you realize the more comfortable you get with it is that you can you can express all the bias you want. Yeah. You just have to cloak it in the right kind of vocabulary and verb tenses. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, you know, this secret reality of science, which which really tries to like shatter beliefs and use language and methodologies that help scientists to see through the beliefs of the day towards something approaching reality. But it's like, you know, it's loaded with all these beliefs and you can use the jargony term and you can say all these things that make it look quote unquote objective. But right, these papers were just were just dripping with judgments and like with a, I don't know if it's a desire or just an impulse or whatever, but to, to preserve this old you know, a quite this idea that fell out of an Italian friar's mouth. Like they're just people bending over backwards uh, with their language to preserve it. Mm -hmm. My interest in this whole topic, which my wife like I rolls about, she calls quanimal. She's like, why do you just love queer animals? Like there's everywhere <laughs> I look, there's quanimal books around. Um, and I've been re just falling down this rabbit hole for the last two years because again, I, just had a belief about it, didn't think it happened in nature, and then, you know, started to see that it did, and my mind was privately blown. But anyway, my my interest in, like, looking into this came about because I guess I just wondered if you have so many laws all over the world, and many of which are still standing, that prohibit homosexuality based on the idea, the explicit idea that it's a, quote, crime against nature— does an awareness of homosexuality in nature have any, like, does that threaten those laws? Does it have any effect, mm -hmm. like, just to have that justification so clearly refuted? Mm -hmm. And so there was a group of people who were also thinking about that back in, like, the 1890s. And there is this kind of collection of German scientists led by Magnus Hirschfeld, who maybe you've heard of, maybe not. But he was this doctor who was gay and he did like all this radical organizing. Um, and he was kind of like a Kinsey pre-Kinsey. Hmm. He founded this place in Berlin called the Institute for Sexual Science, where he studied like the range of human sexuality in humans. But then he also had a library that looked at nature. Um, and he basically it was just this place where he was like, what do people actually do? And he was gay. And he was a big proponent of the idea that like human sexuality exists on a spectrum. Being gay is not necessary. You know, it should not be a crime. There's nothing wrong with it. It happens. And he based his ideas on science and he was hugely political figure he did tons of organizing to try to get more and more people to abolish the anti-sodomy laws which was called paragraph 175 and his catchphrase his like mission statement was justice through science so his whole idea was like look we can't call this stuff unnatural if it's natural if it's found in every human population every culture in all animals like in making the case that homosexuality was natural and not a medical issue, not a sin, not a mental illness, whatever. Like he he was an early person of like, 
there's a biological basis. And so he in his institute, which also was like an early trans clinic, there was like there was there was a library, there were lectures and there was actual medical treatment. He did some great things like he prescribed community to trans people who were lonely, like come hang out. Like, I love that. That's forward thinking. But he also (laughs) uh, dabbled in this horrific experiment where he basically was like there were some gay people who said they didn't want to be gay. So he helped arrange some testicle transplants Mm. from straight people (laughs) to gay, like put on some straight balls, you know, (laughs) aside from everything else, also very dangerous. Yeah. So no, that was like a bad, that was a like justice through science can lead you down some really horrific place. So like, Magnus Hirschfeld is a complicated person, but he was revolutionary in terms of being mm-hmm. outspoken. And But a lesser-known guy in his kind of posse for a while, but his name is Ferdinand Karsch. And he was the director of the Zoological Museum in Berlin. He was an entomologist. He studied spiders and gall wasps. He was basically the first person to kind of make a collection of all these footnotes. And that thing we were talking about, about like the suppression and the marginalization, Mm. he was the first person to do what I think was like a real act of activism via collection. So he published this odd little pamphlet in 1900 um, that was called Pederasty and Tribody Among Animals Based on Literature. Oh my God. Which is basically like homosexuality among animals based on literature. Mm -hmm. And he did this huge lit review. He used his scientific fluency. He'd just been like a sciencey scientist for 20 years. And he looked back at all those footnotes and all those accounts, accounts where missionaries were describing it as like monstrous or horrible. And he kind of insulated himself against critiques that he was making it up or he had an unnatural interest. Like there were nothing he observed, Hmm. but all things other people had said. And he put out this pamphlet with like almost 70 examples from again all like bugs butterflies rant like all the entire animal kingdom like i feel like the pamphlet itself was this technicolor refutation against the idea that it's a crime against nature he was like it is in nature it is in every species and he put this out and magnus hirschfeld published it and like brought it into his organizing and in a lot of ways they were like really successful they got a petition going to abolish the anti-sodomy law really famous people like einstein and thomas mann signed it they like made all this headway and it into the 1920s it was looking like parliament was going to abolish the bans on gay sex and then i don't know if you're aware of anything that happened in germany in the early 30s (laughs) well i mean for a while it was um Liza Minnelli and Michael York <laughs> hanging out, you yeah. know. And then the political situation really escalated. Yeah. And so then, the, you know, Nazis take over. They, on May 6, 1933, they come to the Institute for Sexual Science where all these papers, like many of them unpublished, all these studies on human sexuality on the animal kingdom were housed. They burn the whole thing down. And so God. we loss like there are some things that remain but there are people today who are looking for this lost archive of like this kind of like og archive of of homosexuality and nature and so much of it was just lost Mm -hmm. okay so now i'm going to take you to the study that finally like broke through all this muscular suppression I'm so excited to learn what the gayest animal is. Okay. So I don't know that it's truly the gayest animal, but it is a very gay one. So any other guesses besides bonobo? Hmm. Is it a mammal? No. Huh. Okay. 
Is it a fish? No. I'm just kidding. Fish don't exist. <laughs> yeah, nice. Um, nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's a hint. Yeah. Um, guard your French fries on the beach. Oh my God, is it seagulls? Yes. That's yeah. so great. Yeah. So basically, this is like what the Radiolab piece is mostly about. And I talked to this mm-hmm. sweet couple. Well, they're not a couple anymore, but they were a married couple at the time. Molly Warner and George Hunt. And George was a seagull, you know, ornithologist. And Molly mm-hmm. was his wife between anthropology jobs. So she joined him on this this expedition. Was the expedition just to like a parking lot? Because that's <laughs> yeah. where I always see seagulls. Base, I mean, basically, it was an island that was a parking lot. It's just, I no, totally. It was, it's Santa Barbara Island, 30 miles off the coast of, you know, Southern California. That oh, basically so nice. is a rock. There's like no trees it's just like this barren hunk huh. of rock and there's a wild gull colony out there the western gull loris occidentalis mm. george is a young ornithologist he goes out there to study this colony and he's been studying gulls on the east coast for a long time like 10 years maybe at this point in short he the funny part is he like he has to teach his class because he'd just been hired at uc santa cruz so he's like molly can you st- Stay on this rock in the middle of the ocean for three weeks like by yourself and do your my job for me. And she's like, I guess. So she's out there taking observations on when they mate and who's laying eggs with who. And in short, she sees that the ne- a bunch of the nests, about 10% of the nests, have way too many eggs in them. Like double the amount of eggs. She like radios to George. She's like, there's something really weird going on out here. He comes out and they they look at the birds and they realize, which you can't tell because seagulls are sexually monomorphic. Mm-hmm. They have to do an actual dissection on the original pair to, to confirm it. But they are both females. Wait, is this what the song Lesbian Seagull is? Yes, you know that song. <laughs> I have that queued up in a document for you to play. <laughs> Yes, that's so yes. Okay. Oh, wait, how do you know that song? One of my best friend's moms was a big um, <laughs> Beavis and Butthead fan. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. So Beavis and Butthead adapted the original 1978-ish song by Tom Wilson. Um, but yes, that's where this comes from. So basically, they realize that 10% of the birds on this island are female female paired ha they're mating like they're going through the whole like courtship mount kiss the cloacas they then build their nest together they take turn like incubating and raising the eggs and it's just like one in every 10 nests is two moms and that's just what they're rocking and rolling and so george and molly they freak out. They're so well, like George is so excited. Like he's just he loves seabirds. He's never seen anything like this. It's so wild. And again, he'd ne- there was nothing on the scientific record. Like he's a dutiful scientist. He's never so he's really excited to just publish on something so surprising. So they collect their data. They write up their paper. They submit it to an ornithology journal called the Oc. And uh, remembering what you learned about history, does does the journal accept it? Of course not. Yeah. And I love how how innocently he was like, oh, my gosh, you guys, this is what a leap forward for science. Everyone will be so excited to hear about the lesbian seagulls. And <laughs> yeah. it's like, and of course, they're like, because we talk a lot on the show about pseudoscience, mm-hmm. which is like its own nightmare. But then with like science science, you're like, well, it comes down to like whatever the people in power are willing to believe based on the like particular social agenda that they have 
been instructed to reproduce and like people who tend to be in charge are often white men who are scared of everything so yeah, yeah straight ones too yeah so they're basically they say like we we would need so much more data to publish this i'm sorry how much data do you need on the seagulls right well george is like well okay I'll get more data. <laughs> so they like go back. They spend the next three years collecting data. They discover it's happening on the next island over, which isn't just next door. It's like 40 miles away yeah. um, on Anacapa it's Island. It's not just the lesbian seagull neighborhood. It's not just one isle of lesbos gulls it's two so they now at this point they've had research assistants help them they've got photos they've got like thousands of these nests are are paired female to female like it's just yeah and so he's like screw the fringy ornithological journal i'm submitting to the big boy so he submits it to science and science the magazine Mm -hmm. accepts it Mm. and it's a big paper it drops and like the world goes crazy wow yeah so george he's like a sweet <laughs> bumbling ornithologist and he's like maybe i should have expected it but i didn't I feel like this needs to be a movie but like who would you cast honestly robin williams with a beard would have been a good mm. george he kind of has yeah. that look um kind of like a young sigourney weaver so i don't know who today's mm. sigourney weaver is but this is like if you were to make this movie in like 1989 in the 80s It's Robin Williams and Sigourney Weaver. It's perfect. So July 1977 is a very interesting, charged, particular moment for the gay rights movement in the United Mm. States. A woman near and dear to your heart has just had her first big win in Miami-Dade County, Anita Bryant. Yeah. And to be clear, by near and dear, (laughs) we mean that I talk about her in live shows. And then I'm like, do you guys know she's still alive? Shouldn't she be dead yet? She is still alive. And her I'm sure you talk about this. Her granddaughter is married a woman. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't been talking about it, but like, carry on, you warrior. Okay. So anyway, so Anita Bryant, she had been a spokesperson for the Florida Citrus Commission orange juice, and then she would become the spokesperson and sort of galvanizer of this huge anti-gay lashback. And it was, you know, it was like a lashback in response to some pretty decent strides that had been made in the 70s, mm-hmm. the declassification of homosexuality as a mental illness, you know, more and more anti-sodomy state laws coming down, city ordinances going up to give gay people protections, gay pride mm-hmm. parades, like whatever. It's a, it had been a good moment. And Anita Bryant you know, she has this moment where she's like, I don't think we should be so comfortable with all these homosexuals gaining rights and protections. And so she starts Save the Children, her campaign to kind of, you know, save the children from homosexuals. And so she starts this organization and she is a phenomenal organizer and she galvanizes people to come out, sign a petition to get that off the city ordinance and then they come out in a vote two to one against gay rights and gay protections and Mm -hmm. but one of the cornerstones of her argument is this idea of reminding people about the unnaturalness of homosexuality so she's known to say even barnyard animals don't do the disgusting things homosexuals do she again (laughs) and again one of her big lines and this is like the seeds of the parental rights argument that is dangerous for the children she invokes this weird darwinian evolutionary thing that's like you don't see it in animals this isn't just my beliefs animals obey it and also 
because homosexuals can't reproduce, they have to recruit. <laughs> it was really effective at this moment mm -hmm. when like a country was starting to change its mind about the place of gays in society and queer people in society. And, and it really, it worked. It was really effective. Oh, yeah. Well, and it, and it feels like, I mean, do you feel like we're in a similar moment now where there was this like brief period of like, increase like specifically for for trans people and trans kids like yeah. a brief moment of increased visibility and rights and then the backlash against that is so much bigger it's so similar and the arguments are like the same yeah like the question in voters hands was these you know these the lgbtq community deserves protection you know they deserve protections from being discriminated against mm -hmm. and then she's saying no not only do they not deserve protections like we need to be protected from them like it was such a this just invoking the danger danger to children and then just this sober sounding like they are scientifically yeah. gay animals don't do it they have to nothing against them but because they can't reproduce they gotta recruit so they're coming for your children like there was this almost sciencey flavored assertion you know and that's aquinas right. and we love the flavor of science <laughs> yeah the flavor of science is great and it's powerful and at that point the scientific record like confirmed her assertion still in 77 yeah. now so she had just won and two weeks later george and molly's study drops showing some oh my God. pretty natural looking evidence of homosexuality in nature so so the gay community freaks out like they mm -hmm. see this they rejoice how is this like initially is this the kind of thing where it's like the ap is like new study shows that 10 yeah. percent of seagulls are lesbians okay great <laughs> yeah right in a way that an ornithological study isn't usually like it becomes a new story time Mm -hmm. does a thing on it it's on tv news again just because nice. it so went against the beliefs of the day like it wasn't just one creature it was two islands it was hundreds of birds i guess picturing like uh, all the <laughs> all the lesbian seagulls flying to washington being like you can deny one of us or even a dozen of us but not all and they're <laughs> seagulls so they're very rude <laughs> can i send you something on email yeah please do okay there's a couple of them. There's a couple of different ones, but they're these cartoons of seagulls pooping in Anita Bryant's eye. <laughs> so this one is this one is was in the Boston Globe. Nice. And the bottom says news item: research team finds 14 percent of female seagulls off California coast are homosexuals. <laughs> the gulls are all right. Yeah. So this one, the Boston Globe. What we have: Anita Bryant. <laughs> Having a glass of Florida orange juice and scowling at a seagull that is kind of innocently flying away, but she's got her hand on her eye. So it's interesting that we like we know that the seagull shit on Anita Bryant's face, but perhaps the paper felt that it was unwise to depict <laughs> the actual shit. Yeah. And yes. then the caption says news item research team finds 14 percent of female seagulls off California coast are homosexuals. <laughs> so I so really it's like the seagull is also this is a politically motivated thing for the seagull yeah right right yeah i love that the, so the seagull is protesting and so i think it you know and you see this like little moment where the seagull becomes like a mascot in the gay pride movement just for a second that's so amazing there are plays written about the lesbians really? yeah that pamela oh. gray who's like a 
very legit screenwriter. She'd go on to do um, a music of the heart, which is a Meryl Streep film. She, in her early days, wrote this this play inspired by it, which was about like a group of lesbians who go out to see it and commune with the. She called the play super normal clutches, <laughs> which is the scientific jargon for when a nest has an extra amount of eggs. And so that was like, <laughs> yeah. And she said when she heard that term, she was like, that defines a lesbian relationship. This also reminds me that like one of the classic things about rats that to me shows how advanced their society is. <laughs> Female rats, when, when they're living in a community together, they will naturally synchronize their cycles so mm. that when they have babies, they put them in a big communal nest and take care of them together. And just share the childcare labor. Oh, that's yeah, which I've always so thought great. of as them being like, communist rats yeah but now i'm like how gay are those rats yeah it's pretty gay of them they're gay communists <laughs> even better <laughs> we want to claim kind of historically scientifically that like humans need to organize themselves the way we see in the natural world mm -hmm. but really it's like we're picking and choosing the stuff that supports you know yeah. capitalism and monarchy and yep. christianity and whatever and then yep. if we actually were to take more cues from the natural world, it would be like, well, what if, you know, what if we had more communal child rearing? Because what we have now is just a nightmare for most people. Totally. I mean, I think, yeah, we cherry pick the examples we want to confirm our beliefs. And we, we love monogamous animals, right? The whole like mate for life. Yeah. Animals, the Jack Donaghy line. Yeah. Irish Catholics mate for life, like swans, <laughs> like drunk, angry swans. <laughs> Okay, so that's like the happy reaction. Now, on the other side, you you scanned through a couple of these. There are all kinds of nasty editorials. George, I mean, George said he got calls from around the world, like mm. in India, like because there's so many laws also still standing where in the legal code. At that time, even in the states, over 30 U.S. states still had anti-sodomy laws that were like mm. classified mm. in the legal code as a crime against nature. And so just to see such an extensive example of queerness in nature was what people wanted to talk about it. And so he got angry calls, people kind of questioning his intentions and his interest in this. Wow. He thinks and a number of like queer historians I've talked to think that the fact that they were like a straight married couple helped insulate them maybe against worse. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Or like increase the the level of um credibility they had at the outset. Yeah. yeah. And and increase their ability to just like double down get more data they did get a divorce shortly after it had nothing to do with that they're still friends but anyway nice. and there were reverberations all the way up to congress so he shortly <laughs> after this was published he got a grant from the nsf to keep studying mm -hmm. it because he was really interested and conservative congressmen freaked out and you can see there's this like congressional assembly in 1978 shortly after where they like spent just i looked through the transcript and like all these big fancy senators and or congressmen are like talking about this tiny gull study the gay gulls the gay gulls and they the infighting the resistance to him getting funds to study this was so intense that they held up the nsf budget for 10 days they like held up <sighs> the release of funds there's a lot of blue sky projects out there that cost like millions and billions of dollars and we can't learn about the seagulls the funds of eventually were released to George. And I think that's a that like represented a huge moment for science because 
when he was allowed to keep studying this, he got the cred in science, he got the cred in the funding, and it was final. And again, his paper, if you noticed the title, there was nothing like weird, aberrant female gulls. It was just female yeah. gulls. And I think mm-hmm. it was kind of the first time that the scientific ex- establishment really took homosexuality and nature seriously, endorsed the study of it. And and you really see in its wake, like, this was the open the floodgates moment. This was the study that turned the key and allowed homosexuality to be studied. And in its wake, and now it's been nearly 50 years, there have just been thousands of scientifically verified accounts of homosexuality in nature across all species, all kinds of things. Yeah, uh, The gay penguins, like the males will mate with males and pair with males, females with females. And one of the ideas is that like that is actually super advantageous to the colony because Let's imagine you have like a little colony and some seal or polar bear comes and like eats seven of them. Mm-hmm. If you then have a bunch of creatures that will like pair with anybody, mm-hmm. that's going to increase the survival of the offspring. I love that. And well, and also it feels like bisexuality feels, you know, famously erased as a concept. It's something that sex in the city didn't believe in, which like <laughs> not that we looked to sex in the city for advanced queer theory, but it was very influential and it was considered <laughs> yeah. very scandalous in its time. Yeah. And like and I I don't know. And I feel like there's this view of like bisexuality is like fundamentally greedy. <laughs> and really, it's like, no, it's actually about being a switch hitter. <laughs> In the game of life. <laughs> it's actually about an openness to all forms of, of charm and beauty. Yeah. We're currently at this understanding where a lot of animals will just do it for pleasure. But then there sometimes are other evolutionary gains, like the hunting alliances. It might help you hunt better. But chimps also will like have homosexual sex. The males will engage in fellatio with each other when things are tense and it helps resolve (laughs) conflict, which I love. And also, and I know, and also in bonobos, like it can help resolve conflict resolution during resource scarcity. So let's say like a little bit of honey shows up. Mm -hmm. You might fight to the death for that, but instead Mm -hmm. a little bit of honey shows up. They all have sex with each other. They're like (laughs) flooded in an oxytocin bath. And then in their post-coital calm bonded feeling, they like pass the honey around and share. So it helps them like share better, (laughs) which again helps the strength of a colony. Like if you're not all tearing each other apart and you're all chill and you're able to cooperate, that's really good for fitness. One of the researchers who noticed same-sex sex in chimps, her name is Christine Webb. She said, the hardest part about all this has been confronting the idea that sexual behaviors always have to have some kind of reproductive function. So, like, again, she kept confronting other scientists saying, this doesn't make sense. It's a paradox. And she said, it reflects the dominant model of evolution that emphasizes selfish competition and the survival of the fittest. But what about cooperation? Yeah, Social bonds are really important for well-being, too. Managing conflicts, managing stress and tension are really important for fitness. We've been fixated on one side of the story. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting now, though, is like when you take all this stuff in cumulative, and again, there doesn't have to be, but the the scientific understanding right now is that there is a bisexual advantage because the cost, it's basically like there are all these gains to be had at almost no cost. Like in humanity, there's a cost because we made up these barriers and these social prohibitions. But in the natural world, 
there's very little cost to swinging both ways. And so the belief now is that like there is an advantage to being bisexual. It might not help with reproduction, the moment of reproduction, but it will help afterwards for a colony, for the rearing of offspring. And and so why not? (laughs) This was like revolutionary to me in the last couple of years. And it's been like a paradigm shift for my understanding of like literally where I fit in nature which yeah. has been really cool. <laughs> and that you're like part of nature. And also this idea of like that, you know, we don't have to like lean too hard on this argument that like queerness is a morally meaningful position and like helps hold society together because like you shouldn't have to help hold society together to have human rights. But on the other hand, it is true. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Ex- yes. And that I, I go back to like my like unsung German guy, Ferdinand Karsch, who He's not a perfect person, but that guy who did that initial compilation showing how it's in a part of nature, his whole thing was like, and I don't need a reason why. You don't need an advantage. You don't need a reason. It just, it's a part mm. of being here. And I, I I see the sort of like wrongheadedness of my satisfaction of seeing evolutionary advantages. <laughs> but I, I, I don't know. There's something really fun about being like, homosexuals can be good parents they are they are they're often better parents they're for the good of the community which i think is a this retaliation to the like low thrumming message otherwise don't say gay don't 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 let your children see a gay like there's all this messaging otherwise and so there's something very validating about being able to scientifically (laughs) point yeah to the wrongheadedness of that Oh, my God, completely. Yeah. And then the whole, you know, and then the natural conversation to follow that up with is like, well, on the one hand, if you have to convince people of your humanity, then you will never convince them of your humanity. Because Dangerous. Because they need to be convinced. Yeah. Right. Then like right. they're not like they should just <laughs> know that already. But on the other hand, it's like maybe the point of this is that it's not for them. Like it's for you. And yeah, it's for I love that. people who, for whatever reason, like needed to be told they were good for society. <laughs> I love that. And and actually, again, like my wife, Grace, the whole time she was watching me kind of fall down this rabbit hole, that was her opposition. She was like, I'm worried. I think that the fact that you're so jazzed about this is like, because you still want to convince them and don't even engage in that fight. Don't even like go there. There's a niceness yeah. to, as, as Elliot put it, Elliot Schreffer, like he was like, there can be a loneliness, a feeling of loneliness to being LGBT. And like, there's something nice to see that it's part of our biological heritage and future. Yeah. Nature is so much wilder than our beliefs and rules for it. Like, we're like, what else don't we know? What else haven't we seen because we haven't looked? And a happy coda is a just funny one is that so Anita Bryant back in the 80s, the fact of the gull study as as fun as it felt for like the queer community didn't really have an, any impact on her. She was asked about it in an interview in Playboy. Got the journal, the journalist kind of gotcha at her and was like, "You say gayness is unnatural, but there are animals in nature that are gay." And she was like, "I've never heard of that, and I still know it's a crime against nature because homosexuals can't procreate, so nature still doesn't want it to be, and it's an abomination and a and a, like an empirical perversion." So she didn't really like stop her. If anything, you know, she had more successes. Like there were more cities that dialed back their their protections and then in Bowers v. Hardwick judges voted five to four to keep homosexuality criminalized and they still invoked the unnaturalness of it so it didn't really have an effect right away but over time Mm -hmm. the more and more there was science in Lawrence v. Texas there was a brief filed 
by the APA, the American Psychological Association, which said this should not be a crime against nature. This is a part of every human culture, every civilization, and the entire animal kingdom. And then the book they cited was this was this one by Bruce, which has a huge <laughs> section on the seagulls with illustrations. And whether or not a single judge ever saw that, read that, cared about it, probably mm-hmm. not. The case was one on very different things. I love knowing that, like, the seagulls were there that day, like, cheering, like, they were yeah. there, you know? Oh. <laughs> now, the scientific coda to all this. I was trying to get Radiolab to actually pay for me to go out to Santa Barbara Island and take my wife and kids and go camping there so mm-hmm. we could be, like, nesting under their broods with our brood and their brood and the community mm-hmm. and then george was like the same-sex pairing has died off and now it's a <gasps> heterosexual island no that's so terrible yeah and he thinks he doesn't know he's not positive but his theory is that back in the 70s ddt and dde was getting into the gulls the females were able to flush it out through their eggs but the males weren't so they were dying off so the females had to pair with each other aka it actually may have been a gay for the stay fluke (laughs) (laughs) but it opened the door but it actually may have been a wow anyway and so that's like the wild ending that is a last second twist i know which when i found i was so deflated and humbled but then i also realized like okay i can't thou shalt not find their worth or belonging based on animals. So I I try now to celebrate them, but not derive too much of my own spiritual belonging Mm. from them because they should just be allowed to be animals. And I need to to not do exactly what the other side was doing, which was pointing to them as as proof of an argument, you know, bringing them into an argument that they don't have to be a part of. They're like, I'm a seagull. I would like a French fry. Anyway, so that's my penguin story. Happy pride. Ah, happy pride, happy penguin story. I feel moved by the spirit for whatever reason. Because like the journey of my sexuality in the show has been very interesting. Because I think that for years, my like, I never have identified as asexual, but I just like did not have sex with or date anyone for a really long time. Just didn't want to do it. Yeah. And on this show and like especially in the early years i and or when i was on twitter i would occasionally be like i'm a straight woman as a straight woman i'm a straight you know like straight women do they always like mention it mm-hmm. and um it's not true you guys and you all knew before me you knew years <laughs> before me everyone for this whole time has been like that sarah seems pretty gay and i've been like no it's no no I some like allowing myself to see myself and exist as a bisexual woman yeah. and it has felt really really good and I also like kind of as a joke at the start of this year was like I'm on strike and I'm not gonna think about cis straight men at all mm-hmm. and uh that really accelerated things because it turns out I don't I don't miss them very much <laughs> um <laughs> and like we all know I've got my 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 feelings for for particular guys like Gene Siskel like that <laughs> the both the doors are open but it's just like <laughs> both the doors it won't no one will be surprised but like you know you should just you should just tell them and this is my moment I'm telling this you your, and it's hey. because of the seagulls and it's and Lulu like thank you for making oh my god this nest for me to be hatched in I didn't know th- I didn't know that until this moment and I'm I feel lucky to get to know and but welcome to the out queer island 
to the party. I love it here. And yeah, I guess you just I guess you just join your ranks as like the most average natural thing in nature, which is just pretty much everyone be by. Yeah, we're just right. <laughs> Yay. We're, oh. we're, all right, we're two by seagulls. <laughs> um, oh my God, that's awesome. That's a beautiful way to, to end a chat. That's really cool. What a day. <laughs> Lulu Miller, by the way, where else can we find more of you? <laughs> um, I mean, mostly over at, at Radio Lab. I am the co-host over there. We, our team Ever is- Ever heard of it? This, it's a, it's a, it is a podcast that is- kind of like a, a sonic trip through used to be only science, but now it's really curiosity and, and trying to bring in all their kinds of expertise. And the team is incredible. The team is so cool. I'm really proud of the stuff we're doing and that we actually right now this month, we have two, we have kind of a double rainbow of deep dives into the nature of queerness, what science has said about it, what's gotten wrong, how that hurts or helps politics the kind of dangerous entwining of politics and science around queerness and mm. yeah and, and then if you if you have little ones or if you just want a sonic nature walk i also have a, a podcast out of radio lab called terrestrials that's kind of a nature show for kids and so there's that too and i do just if it's okay like i want to give the hugest shout to the two producers who have just mm -hmm. helped me do all the research on this seagulls and penguin mm -hmm. stuff. Sarah Kari and Becca Bressler, they're amazing. They are a part of this whole rant. I just spun your way. Like we've been learning together for a year and, and they're just so special. So shout to them. That's so great. Thank you so much to the three of you for going on this journey so we can hear about it. <laughs> yes, come come play, come check out Radio Lab, and thank you for having me, Sarah. It's so great. It's like one of the great joys, and I hope everyone gets to feel this, is to sort of, you know, help do dishes for the person who helps you do dishes, and we just keep doing each other's dishes. <laughs> yeah, I really hope that encrusted oatmeal is finally off by the end of this, right? <laughs> <laughs> She flies so gracefully over rocks and trees and sand Soaring over cliffs and gently floating down to land She proudly lifts her voice to sound her mating call And soon a mate responds by singing Come with me, lesbian seagull Settle down and rest with me Fly with me, lesbian seagull To my little nest by the sea when you belong with me I know I can be strong when you're with me with me and that was our episode thank you to Lulu Miller for taking us on this ride today storytelling wise and knowledge wise and for helping to take me on the bigger ride of getting to talk to you all for a living. Thank you, Lulu, for everything and everything you do. Thank you, Miranda Zickler, for editing. Thank you, Carolyn Kendrick, for editing and producing. And thank you to Carolyn 
for giving us this version of Lesbian Seagull. Thank you for being here. Thank you for everything that you are. Happy Pride. See you in two weeks. You just watch the world go by Oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my Just you and me, lesbian seagulls Side by side with me Flying high